welcome once again to the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilience Shift. Peter Willis and I are back to discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our latest eighth round of weekly interviews conducted with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations who are navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Peter, welcome back. Hello, Seth. Good to be here. Yes, uh, another um, another week has has gone by. It, it seems on, on one hand, time is standing still, and all of, in the midst of all of this, and in another, it just seems like there's one intense week after another, and it's it's hard to keep track of how quickly the time is going. It's a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? Just it's like a you can a world can turn around in a week or a month. I agree. It is. It's kind of Dizzying. Yeah, dizzying. It does just going to use a similar kind of analogy. It kind of takes your breath away. And we've got this biological crisis, and then we've had this financial crisis. And then here in the US, the epicenter of basically a massive civil rights anti racism wave in the last week. And even that is, you know, we had another kind of emotional day yesterday in the United States with a, with a massive uh, Supreme Court victory that nobody saw coming from a conservative, conservative bench now. Um, also very much in the civil rights kind of area. Um, so it's, it's just, oof, it's, it's hard to keep up, Peter. But, the, you know, this is, this is playing directly into our hands, uh, Seth, isn't it? Because what it's telling us is that we must actually learn to expect this, that it's not just that, I mean, the news media for the last 100 years have been very good at making sure that with our breakfast, there's something shocking to look at and that, that you can always find something to sort of stir the emotions particularly with COVID and now with this tsunami of racial reckoning that's rippled out of the states and around the world, my sense is that it's becoming really obvious to an awful lot of people that this turbulence is here to stay and that therefore, from a leadership perspective, get good at crisis because that's all there is now. I couldn't agree more. And and I'm really quite curious, as usual, to see how and what is getting picked up in this most recent sets of crisis with our participants. I'd be shocked if the U.S. participants in particular um, weren't talking to you about uh, the, the anti-racism movement and, and protests. But um, so you have they? I'm, I'm, how is that kind of coming into this and, and their ability to, to deal with it or handle it? Has it come up at all? Well, it definitely, um, both within the U.S., and in one or two places outside, although interestingly, there are other places outside where, particularly for the chief resilience officers, their noses are to the grindstone of the COVID crisis still. It obviously depends where you are in the cycle, but municipalities where there isn't active protest around the racism problem, they are seriously dealing with the um, the, the COVID crisis, which, as you know, is very far from settled, except in a, in a few spots around the world, like still uh, our friend who's in Copenhagen, that's a very peaceful place to be right now. But everybody else, COVID is pr- still pretty front and center. But yeah, it's interesting it's, that... Yeah, sorry, go on. No, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just kind of a, agree that, again, interesting what's happening here in the U.S., on the reopening side, because it's just fascinating because you, you've got some states now that have done a really 
serious job of lockdown and that were the previous epicenters like New York and the cases are still going down as we're now eyeing our kind of phased reopening for the summer. But then you've got other states in the country where COVID is now going up and it's coinciding with those states, quote unquote, reopening. And I think the most severe example of this is, is the state of California, where the governor Newsom um, got a lot of credit, uh, rightfully so, for shutting his state down, which is, you know, the seventh largest economy in the world, very, very rapidly. Took some heat for doing it, but then completely missed a big spike of COVID for the most part compared to other states. But now what's happening is that the state is reopening and some say too fast. And now, so you missed the initial spike because you shut down early, but now you're hustling back to reopen and that spike is beginning to happen again. So it is, it is a really stressful time here in the U.S. and I'm sure in other places as they're reopening and that there must be some serious fatigue setting in, Peter. Oh, yes, that certainly. Some expressing it more vividly and others I'm sensing it in the background of what they're telling me. But I mean, for example, the um, had a very telling story out of Milan. There's a, a sense of sort of tempers fraying a bit in the, the newly rejoined public spaces. Right. And, and which, which just for the listener, you know, yeah. Italy is all about communal public places. I mean, it's the, it's the, the land of the piazza. I mean, you come together. Particularly in summer. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, you know, Italy being one of the hardest hits and then, yeah, needing to come together in a way that very, very few countries and cultures do like the Italians. And he told me a story of a, a very famous bar and restaurant in the city, which reopened, took all the right precautions, spent quite a lot of money organizing for physical distancing and so on, but then closed after 10 days saying so many people came into the bar demanding to be served, but refusing to wear a mask, which they were asked nicely to do, and saying, no, this virus is a hoax. It's just something that the lefties organized to undermine Trump. Give me a drink. And they decided it is simply not worth the emotional friction that they were having to put their staff through. So they closed their business down again. And now that may just be a, a relatively isolated incident, but Piero, who I was talking to, is, is very well connected, obviously, into his city. And he says this is, there are very high expectations coming out of lockdown. And the way he puts it is that, and I think this is psychologically very true for, for most countries, actually, I'm sure it's very much the case in the state, that pretty much everybody agreed to go into lockdown from a sort of centralized, everybody go to your homes to be safe. And it was simple, and the threat was very clear. But coming out of lockdown is, first of all, a much more messy thing. I know you've got it state by state, and the decision-making is much more diffuse. But also, as he puts it, people now feel free to be stupid. He says, look, now the fake news is really rampant, and people feel that they're exercising their normal freedoms. And there isn't this sense of collective discipline which made the lockdown a very special period. How fascinating. No, I, I mean, it totally resonates with me, Peter, and fascinating to hear that story from Piero. But um, here, you know, here in the US, I, I just had an experience like that uh, over the weekend with our local farmer's market. And you've got, you do, you, I, I kind of see it as people uh, unevenly coming back um, to social interaction. And some people are 
really afraid and, and have almost developed conditions of like agoraphobia of, of after being in the house for three months and just don't want to go back out. And then others on the other end of the spectrum are aggressively like, I want to claw back my individual rights. This isn't a big deal. I wasn't impacted. I want my life back. The flag that I can wave to bear on this topic is walking around without a mask. And then you've got the people who are the arbiters of, of social interaction right now, which are largely commercial enterprises, grocery stores, gas stations, dentists, hairdressers, and they have to engage with everybody. And they're required by law to, to wear masks and they want to protect themselves. So there, there's now these signs all popping up. It used to be you couldn't go into a, a store or something in most states and, it, and there's these little signs that said no shoes, no shirts, no service. <laughs> and now it's no masks, no service. If you're not wearing a mask, don't come in. But it, it is this really tense kind of conflict playing out right now. Yeah. And uh, you, you used an interesting word in there, which was arbiters. And uh, that's a very accurate way of pinpointing the, the social need, which is for sort of decentralized rule setters and norm setters. Because my sense is that while national governments, the sort of apex rule givers, were critical and by and large successful in the, that early phase of Everybody go to your homes, protect, protect, protect. When it comes to the, the, the fine points of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, once you can get out of your home and start, some people are working, some people are out in public, et cetera, then it all breaks down and it has to be dealt with more locally. You can't rely on a stream of minutiae coming out of national government. And so your, your, like you say, your, your high street, main street uh, shops are having to make their own rules to protect themselves and their customers. But I'm also thinking that corporations, and this is coming from some of my conversations with them, they are in a way putting out a pulse of a kind of a values-laden pulse, which is around um, maintaining this strong sense of um, physical care, health-driven care for their staff, and their stakeholders, their customers, and so on, because corporations are highly organized, sort of internally highly regulated organisms, they have that habit. And people who work for corporations are used to sort of checking over their shoulder to say, what is my corporation thinking and saying about how I can behave in this situation? So I think that's quite a beneficial sort of radiating influence out into their communities, because they are not taking that route of, hey, I'm free now. You know, as you say, my individual rights are restored, so off I go. And I think they, they may be over this next very difficult, uneven phase. I think co large corporations um, may prove to be islands of sort of radiating cohesion and order. I don't know what you think of that. Does that am I making sense to you? What a fascinating point. I'm just sitting here like, whoa, like I, I just hadn't thought of it that way. But you're totally right. Companies have had to create, just as we were talking about, they've had to create their own sets of rules and guidelines um, in, in many cases, and then engage with their employees. And up until now, that in some cases, that's been people, large swaths of, of their staff working from home. But many companies have also already had to co-mingle and, and work out shifts and protection and in warehouses or packaging um, production facilities. And it's interesting, 
those are bastions of consideration and temper in the sense that they've had to work together and figure out how to co-create those rules and how to be sensitive of people coming from different places. And it's, it's so strongly compared to people who either lost their job, which in the US, a ton of people have lost their job. So haven't been part of that corporate um, process now are a little angry and bitter about having lost their jobs to COVID and want their lives back versus the people who have been in, in these corporations and have had to kind of figure out how to work together. And they're not getting that in, in any other areas. And it's also really fascinating, really got my brain going here, because there's also this, this learning that ha- is happening with bigger comp- corporations with bigger footprints all over the world who've had to be more reflective and inclusive of all these different issues versus small companies, mom and pops or corner stores who have to figure it out all on their own. And, and then they're being inundated. And the same thing, another great example is what just happened in New York uh, City over the weekend. Andrew Cuomo is the mayor of New York. is getting a ton of press of being a very transparent and verbal and clear communicator around this crisis. He threatened that we were going to have to roll back reopening in New York because this weekend, everybody went out to the bars and ignored social distancing rules and masks and, and had to go, go uh, on the air and basically said, hey, these shops can't do it on their own. And if, if everybody doesn't follow the law of the reopening, we're just going to simply have to shut it down again. I think it's a fascinating point that you're making. And, and I love the idea of these islands of, of interconnected vibrations in terms of where there's pockets through corporate leadership and corporate philosophy of figuring out you know, how to handle this. Um, and it's providing individuals with more open-mindedness. I'm sort of feeling around in the dark on this to an extent because um, I'm only talking to six, seven individuals uh, on a weekly basis from that world of corporations. But there's definitely a pattern emerging there of really leaning into the order and structure that goes with a, with a corporation. And interestingly, this, I think this is visible in relation to the racial upheaval that's echoed out of George Floyd's death, where the natural reaction of a well-run large corporation with sort of operations around the world is to say, we have to have a coherent, rational, compassionate, defensible response to this, which our people, our staff spread around the world will feel is okay, will not sort of reject and we'll start to lose them, which which is obviously the worst nightmare of any corporation is that your staff drift away from your leadership, but that will also provide a reassurance to our wider stakeholders, our customers, the people who sort of look up to us, public facing brand, our suppliers, the regulators, and so on, that they see that we are actually thinking about this in a way that's properly responsive. They have to be, they are required by their shareholders, by their boards, by the laws of governance, the rules of governance now. They have to go through those processes. And that's good. You know, these are battleships out there on the ocean. They're not single kayaks or rowing boats. They're full of people, highly organized. So something really disturbing arises like this huge racial protest. They're at least not hiding. Uh, And just before we went on air, you were talking to me about the uh, impressive number of corporate Respond. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure how to put it, but you were saying that my, my, the impression I got was that corporations are not 
sitting back and waiting to see which way the wind blows on this issue. Is that right? I totally agree. And it's fascinating to see the kind of the sequence of a of a biological and then a financial and then a, a civil society crises, one after the other, and, and how one has led to the other or have been part of it or contributed to it in some way. But it is fascinating to see, again, we're seeing these patterns emerge where the initial shock of COVID-19 forcing companies and people and cities to think differently, to act communally. And, and what really honestly saved us all to some degree was the global volunteerism, people around the world agreeing to significantly alter their lives and social distance to slow the spread of this virus. And then how companies reacted and dealt with it and, and similarly with cities. What's fascinating about the protests around racism and, and the support of anti-racism that's happening here in the U.S. is a similar pattern. It's individuals who are standing up collectively and consistently. This isn't just wasn't a day, it wasn't a weekend in a way that is significantly different than it's happened in the past. And I think that part of what's different this time is the staying power and the intensity of which people uh, in the U.S., but also around the world are kind of standing up for anti anti-racism, but also the the preparedness with which companies and cities have been in to react. What I also find really interesting about this, Peter, is that in many cases, companies have seemingly been reacting much better than cities, at least in the U.S. And it's hard to paint cities with a, a broad brushstroke because a lot of the issue here in the U.S. is around policing and the use of force. But police are parts and departments of cities, so you can't talk about them separately. And that's been a large part of this problem. I hate to get kind of weird and, and kind of geeky about this, but it, when you talk about resilience, you need to talk about whole systems thinking. It's not a component. It's not a silo. It's not a sector. If you, you have to understand the interconnected nature of infrastructure and shocks and stresses to actually be more resilient. And resilience is a, is a process. It's not necessarily a defined outcome. And that's what we're seeing playing out across the world in the U.S. here with these protests and, and anti-racism. It's that I believe people are beginning to realize that this isn't just about another killing of an African-American at the hands of the police. And it's not just about legislation to ban or bar a particular tactic of policing like a chokehold. There's a broader communal understanding, I believe, of people that there's issue of racism in the U.S. is systemic. It's part of our education. It's part of our laws and policy. It's part of policing. And that you cannot simply address this by banning a chokehold. It, it re is requires much more significant awareness and change and at multiple levels. And that is what I think is so radically different this time is that there is a, uh, somehow an immediate recognition. And I can't help but wonder if it isn't because of the pandemic and that people are more attuned to these interconnected systems and failures. Well, this is really interesting, Seth. You're making me wonder whether actually since um, the beginning of this year, we haven't been embarked on a mass global scale lecture on course even on systems thinking because the COVID-19 crisis looked as it came over the horizon like a medical emergency. This invisible virus that we all suddenly had to become knowledgeable about. And it has become so evident that, that it brings in its wake, as one of our participants pointed out some weeks ago, 
it brings in its wake uh, an economic, a financial, eventually a psychological, a social upheaval. And in every case, revealing what's underneath and what, what are the sort of pre-existing conditions of that particular subsystem, whether it's your, the way your economy is set up, where your society is stratified. And we are being given a massive lesson in how to join the dots and to realize that just as you so rightly say, banning a chokehold and then going away, going away and saying, phew, well, that was brave. Well done, us. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. And I suspect there's, we had a wonderful, um, wonderful observation from one of your compatriots on, a, on one of the conversations I had last week, where he pointed out that the reason why these protests were able to go on day after day after day was that so many Americans were out of work or working from home and therefore able to be flexible. You could not imagine this during normal times when people had schedules, or you might say schedules, and they, could, they, couldn't, they couldn't do this kind of thing. So it's, it's a very sort of banal observation, but it's one of those accidents of history that people actually have the time to get out there and express their solidarity, which they might otherwise have been sitting at work thinking and feeling. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you give that example and that that came up in your conversations, because part of that honestly just makes me angry. Like we, we've all been so lazy that we needed a pandemic and, and a flexible working from home schedule to go out and protest against something that was so pervasively wrong for so long. But on the other hand, you can't deny that it probably did contribute significantly to a vigorous and sustained movement. So, but I wouldn't only say that it's to do with having the available time. That I think that's a very useful thing to bear in mind. It's a helpful observation, but I think it was actually another one observation during a conversation last week. It was around, it was Elaine, and she was struggling to put words to it, but saying that there's been a sense of we that is quite unusual that surfaced during the COVID crisis. And that that, she identified that as being underneath this um, willingness to protest racial injustice at such a scale now. And now for me, that's the driver and it's the availability of time that's the enabler, if you like. Totally agree. And I'm, I'm sorry to be using so many US-centric examples today, but given everything that's going on, maybe, maybe that's appropriate. But in this conversation that we're having about the sustained movement, where it's coming from, why, the other thing that strikes me is, and similar to the conversations we've been having about leadership resilience is this kind of idea or concept around early week signals. How do you pick them up when and why, and what do you do with them? Here in the U.S., you know, we play football and in the U.S. It's a, it's a different version. It's the one that we, you know, put a bunch of pads on. It's not the one with a soccer ball that we play with our feet. And the NFL is a big business here in the United States. And we had this famous, famous incident where one of the quarterbacks for a team at San Francisco 49ers, in fact, knelt down in protest during the national anthem and explicitly about police brutality more than two years ago. And basically what happened is there was articles and it just blew up. And people are, it's appropriate to do that and to protest in that way, um, or it's not. It's showing disrespect to the flag. And it's, there, there's a time and a place, and, and it is or it isn't for athletes on the field and to do it for the flag. And this quarterback basically got, got excommunicated, so to speak, from working in the NFL, lost his job, and hasn't been able to come back. That was a very strong signal years ago that did not get picked up. But now the exact issue, which is fascinating, about police brutality 
And in a cruel twist of fate, the symbol of that, of kneeling, which is what killed somebody, kneeling on somebody's neck for eight minutes, is the exact same symbol that Colin Kaepernick chose to quietly, silently, but very visibly and profoundly protest against police brutality. So I guess there's a, I have a twofold question here for you, Peter, to kind of round this conversation out, which is, what is going on with, this isn't, now it's happening. It, this is not, I wouldn't describe it as a weak signal. This is a very strong signal, but one that still needs to be dealt with. So it's more apt to the tsunami, the crashing wave. But where is the future leadership coming from? Is it from an athlete kneeling down? Is it from a CEO? Is it from a mayor? As we deal with crisis after crisis, what, what does it look like in terms of leadership to you? If I talk first to the, to the first part of your question, which is around these, what do you do with those early signals? I think the, the humbling truth is that the signals around racism have been with us for how many thousand years? Probably sort of since the very beginnings of human history. And we've been responding erratically and occasionally. And it's quite exceptional, it must be unique now, that there is a global ripple of active concern about the levels of institutional and systemic racism. That We've never had that before. It's always been isolated or isolatable. Okay, so what, what I wanted to say was about the, the, the way corporations, which have been the ones that I've been talking most with about this particular thing, their, their response to this, if one were to sit down with them and have a really frank conversation, I'm sure you would persuade most of them to admit that they knew that racial disparities within their workplace and in their communities around them were unacceptable way back. But nobody was pressing their buttons hard enough to sit up and pay attention and actually treat these signals as portents of real danger, doom, and so on. There is a lesson in that. To me, there's a real resilience lesson in that. I think they would probably, in a way, you could say they would say, well, we, we were being resilient because we were going bumbling along with the, the flow of the, the river and nobody else was really doing much about this. So why would we put our necks out and risk our businesses by saying, no, we're not, we're not going to tolerate this anymore? And that doesn't make you resilient. You, it just makes you compliant. Ah, uh, interesting point. Yeah. Uh, what I think now we have the the chance to reevaluate what social resilience might look like, because there's no question that if you have a society with massive inequality of opportunity and access, and I'm living in South Africa where we, you know, coined it that notion, if you like, then you're ultimately always at risk of fracture and and collapse. So I mean, there's a rather grand sort of high level statement to make at the end of this. I think from a point of view of corporate leadership, the double whammy of having to deal with the coronavirus and then deal with the, the realization that we've always known that racism was rampant and distorting our realities and people's lives, to have these out in the open is phenomenally refreshing and very disturbing for people on, on the sort of the upper side of the power balance. I think it pretends for, for more to come. I mean... What we're talking about here is the relevance of leadership for the future moving forward. And if leaders aren't able to grasp or accept or to adopt or to even further inspire significant change right now, they're not going to remain a leader. 
It doesn't matter whether that's at a CEO level or in your, on your school board or a part of your Boy Scout troop. There's a leadership by standing up, taking action, defending others, and moving towards what is good for everyone, not what is good for individuals. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful aspiration. You and I, I know, live and work for that kind of a future where it is about all of us. And leadership for that looks, I agree with you, looks as though it's bursting out all over the place. And it's really very exciting. It is. And I know we're, we're only kind of interviewing a small sliver, of a microcosm of, of, the, of people around the world. But even in our 12 participants from everything I've heard from you today, it does sound like this, this is apparent and this is active and this is happening, which gives me, again, quite a good degree of hope. So thanks again for sharing all this, Peter, and, uh, and for talking about this. You know, this is a, a tough discussion um, and a very sensitive, a very raw one. But I, I think it needs to happen. And that's what I'm also heartened by is, is the number of discussions and openness and, and awkwardness that is happening. Because if you can't have a conversation about it, then it's not going to change. That is um, so, so true. Always a pleasure, Seth. Likewise, Peter. Talk to you in a week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for our eighth round of Weekly Insights. We find ourselves in interesting times. I hope you are finding our reflections on these times interesting and hopefully helpful as well. If this is your first time listening to us and you're wondering where to go next, we've recently wrapped up a midterm summary of emerging insights from our project thus far. You can also listen to our previous episodes with Weekly Insights. We've got more than a handful of those up on the website now. Check out our episode notes for links to our project page and to subscribe to our podcast. On behalf of The Resilient Shift, this is Seth Schultz signing off. See you next week.